Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Our text for our sermon is from the prophet Hosea as recorded in chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6, verse 6. I will go. I will return to my place until they are judged guilty and they seek my face in their distress. They will seek me eagerly. Come, let us return to the Lord. He himself has torn us, but he will heal us. He is wounding us, but he will bandage us. He will restore us to life after two days. On the third day, he will rise so that we may live before him. We will know. We will pursue knowledge of the Lord. His coming forth is as sure as the coming of dawn. He comes to us like the rain, like the spring rain that waters the earth. What will I do to you, Ephraim? What will I do to you, Judah? Your loyalty is like a mist in the morning, like early morning dew that goes away. That is why I have cut them into pieces by the prophets. I have killed them by the words of my mouth. The judgment against you are spreading out like light. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the word of our Lord. Allow me to sound like the action-adventure shows I used to watch on Saturday mornings as a child. Last week, we found the generation that was going to conquer the promised land, about to enter it, and Moses warned them, if you be like your parents and grandparents and reject me, chase after false gods and don't trust in me, then I won't send the rains and I won't hand this land over to you. But if you remain faithful to my word then I'm going to bless you. That generation conquered the promised land, but generation after generation chased after false gods. And after King Solomon died, there was a civil war and the nation of Israel was split. The northern kingdom of Israel, which was primarily the tribe of Ephraim, and the southern kingdom of Judah, that's where the temple was. And the northern kingdom set up a cult right there at Bethel where they worshipped false gods. Prophet Elijah and Elisha were sent. They continued to worship false gods. So at the time of Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ, God sends Hosea to them. And in fact, because they've been unfaithful, God had Hosea marry a woman who would not remain committed to him. Hebrew words, also the word for a prostitute, a cheating spouse, because when you're brought into God's church, the church is like a bride and Christ is the groom. And he's showing how unfaithful they were to him in a way that would bring home for them. Jesus, when he calls Matthew to be a disciple and the Pharisees get mad because he's calling a sinner, quotes this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But have you read the Old Testament? Exodus has all these rules about sacrifices. Numbers brings it up. Leviticus has a lot about sacrifices. Why does God turn around and say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? We'll answer that question as we go through our text today. Allow me to bring out the subtle nuances of the Hebrew by preaching on my own translation. Chapter 5, verse 15. God tells them what he's going to do because they've been a cheating spouse to him for generation after generation. He says, I will walk away and I will turn back to my place until the time when they acknowledge their offense and they seek my presence in their anguish. They are rising early to earnestly seek me. Those action adventure shows I watched as a kid, it was very common where the hero got trapped between two walls that were closing in. 
That's the picture God has in that word. And they seek my presence in their anguish or distress. Things are closing in on them. The Assyrians are going to come and they are going to conquer the northern kingdom. They're going to haul them off and they'll transplant people in. And that hybrid religion, the Samaritans will come so that 700 years later, Christ will sit at the well and witness to that Samaritan woman who will come to faith. The thing here is, is they keep chasing after false gods, just like Hosea's spouse kept cheating on him. God says enough. There comes a point where God turns his back to let us suffer our own folly. And he did that with the northern kingdom. Fine. If you want to chase after false gods, have at it. See how well they defend you. See how well they protect you. See how well they bless you. But he doesn't do that just to be mean and say, there, I've had enough and I'm going to pound on you. God does this because he wants them to repent and cling to him. Give him the place that belongs in their heart. And he's earned that place. Just like he has for you and I by taking on human flesh and being perfectly righteous for us in our place and then dying to remove our sin and rising to give us eternal life. So just as he tells that kingdom, I'm going to turn my back on you. And he did. The Assyrians came in and he also turned his back on Judah 150 years later and allowed the Babylonians to come in. He did that to discipline them. And he does that to you and I. Many children are blessed by the Lord to be born to Christian parents in Christian households and be brought up knowing the Lord. And they become like those trust babies who were born to wealthy parents and inherit a fortune. They take it for granted. They become spoiled in the Lord. They don't see the need to come and worship the Lord. They start telling God what his word should say and how he should treat them as if they're entitled. And there are times as they run off to do what they want to do. God says, fine. I'll let you suffer your folly. But again, he does it because he doesn't want to lose them to an eternity in hell. He gave his son for us so that it's only unbelief that damns us. And God even supplies the belief. So if we find ourselves in hell, it's not God's fault. And God actually lets us suffer our folly, as I said, to prevent that. Now, we also see this happen in Christian congregations. They turn their back on the word of God. They come to it and they start saying, well, I don't know. I don't like what this says. We'll scratch that out. Uh, I disagree with this. I think I'm going to choose what is popular science today, which may not even be good science. And we'll make God's word fit that. God will say to congregations like that. Fine. You want to continually twist my word where I assure you of my love and your salvation, even your need for a savior. I'll let you suffer that folly. And oftentimes I've met people who are members of those congregations where one day they look back and they say, this used to be such a God loving congregation. And now you know, my, my father who helped build this church died and his funeral might as well have been a pagan funeral. There was no grace. There was no love. So God, when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice in the background is already warning them. You're a cheating spouse to me. And so I'm going to let you suffer your folly so that you will appreciate what you have and stop doing that. Now, we hear a confession in verses one through three of chapter six. The people of Israel being warned, I'm going to turn my back to you. They say, walk away and let us return to the Lord. Walk away from these false gods. Walk away from this false worship. Return to God because he himself has ripped to shreds 
but then he heals us. He brings about our being struck, but then he bandages us up. He causes our resuscitation after a couple of days. And on the third day, he brings about our rising. And so we live in his presence. In Hebrew poetry, even, that's recorded here, the people of Israel, they say, let's repent. Like a child saying, you know, dad told me not to throw the baseball and I broke his windshield. I'll tell dad I'm sorry. I'll take my grounding or my spanking and, and it'll be swift, but then get everything's going to be great again and it'll be over. That's what they're actually confessing. And if it wasn't what they were actually confessing, it would be a beautiful confession. But again, in verse four, God asks, what should I do to you, Ephraim? That's the northern kingdom. What should I do to you, Judah? It makes it clear that this is let's go ahead and sin and then we'll, we'll just repent and God will forgive us. Hosea had married an unfaithful spouse. Have you ever met somebody who's married someone like that? You saw it coming and you warned them, this person is not going to be faithful to you. And every time they have the chance, they cheat. But the person's desperate. So they're weak. They take the person back every time. That's not how God is. There is a point, as we've already seen, where God says, fine, you're going to bring an STD into this thing. I'm done. You go out there and act like a harlot. I'm done with you. But God is also quick to forgive, which is what they confess. And so we want to be careful. We don't want to run out and say, I can sin and then I'll, I'll, I'll repent and God will discipline me, but it'll be over quick. He's really gracious. But this is a comfort for you and I. Because you and I both struggle with sin every day. And you have sins you struggle with that you're especially weak at that I don't. And I have sins I struggle with that I'm especially weak at and you don't. And we struggle with those sins and we lose. And that's why it's such a comfort for us to know God is gracious. God picks us up, washes us clean with his son's blood. So we're wearing that white wedding dress again and says, you glorified me in your struggle and I'm glorified in forgiving you. But what about those people who turn their back on God or like the cheating spouse who intentionally do that? I've served people as a pastor who much later in life, having been the trust baby of Christianity that I mentioned in older years, have come to recognize their folly after God let them suffer it. And you know what? As the people of Israel confessed, God did take them back. In fact, God had used his Holy Spirit to work their repentance and he restores them as his children. In verse 3, the word they use for knowledge, it says, let us intimately know, let us pursue in order to intimately know the Lord. As the dawn has been established, so also has the place of his coming forward. And as he comes to us as the rain, as the latter rains are poured down to the earth. The Hebrew word used for knowledge there is for more than just, yeah, I know of this guy. That was the knowledge they had before God disciplined them. The knowledge is like that when a husband and a wife know each other. Because they've lived with each other. They've not only shared a roof, they've shared a bed for years and years and years. So they know each other's personality well. Or a child knows their father. Oh, they knew of God and he was somebody they'd keep on the back burner. But to truly know God means to be in his word. To constantly confess your sins and constantly trust his word that assures you, I have washed your sins away. What a comfort for us. You get to know God like this 
It's what you're doing this morning when you hear a sermon, when we're able to have Bible study again, when we have Bible study, and when we spend a little bit of time every day doing meditations, just a couple of minutes, we are intimately knowing God. And we begin to recognize that hand when God is disciplining us, when God is guiding us in our lives, even though we can't turn to to a certain chapter of the Bible and have God say, yea, verily, and right now I want you to take this job while I had you fired for things you didn't even do at your previous job you begin to recognize the hand of God guiding you and loving you. And so they were confessing God's grace, but they were confessing it, saying, yeah, we've been in trouble. Let's get this over with and he'll be gracious. But it's a comfort for you and I because they are right. God is quick to forgive. But this is he also disciplines us so he doesn't lose us to eternal salvation. There at the end of verse four, he said, your committed love goes away like a cloud in the morning and like early morning dew. That Hebrew word I translate as committed love is often translated as loving kindness when it's talking about God or mercy. You and I are like the cheating spouse. We struggle with sin every day and we lose, but God's committed to us, committed to pouring his blood upon us. But like Hosea's wife, her committed love, she wasn't committed at all. Every time she had a chance, she ran off on him. That's what God's saying. What kind of a marriage is that when you can't trust your spouse and and they're always running off with somebody else? God says, you act like you love me. Oh, screwed up. I need a roof over my head and three square meals a day. And and so I'm going to come running back to you. But just like when we get uh, fog in the morning and the sun rises and burns it off, it's gone. Just like the Wyoming winds blow the clouds away and it's gone. So that's how they were committed to God. We praise the Lord that he strengthens our hearts in him when we're in the word so that we remain committed. But God continues with that in verse five, saying, therefore, I have cut them out by the prophets. Now, recall, if we jump to the first epistle of Peter, Peter talks about how, quoting the psalm, you and I are like stones. We've been cut out of the quarry of this world and placed upon the foundation stone, the bedrock, the living stone that is Christ. God uses his word to do that. He shows us we need a savior and he shows us he is our savior. But for those who keep wanting to jump off of that wall, they're living stones. He picks them up and finally says, fine, if you want to reject me, I throw you out. The prophets would be the Bible. So the Bible shows us and gives us salvation. But when we reject it, God's saying, I cut you out to be part of my church. You had everything. And you rejected it. And so he said, I've executed them by the words of my mouth. His law has gone out and showed them he was their Lord, showed them what holiness was. And they said, no, thank you. So now that word that would have saved them, telling them of the Savior, has condemned them. He continues, and the judgments against you are a light going forward. If you ever walk out at night and you can't see anything, so you've got a flashlight. As these people continue in their false worship at Bethel and the people at Judah who were, they had the temple, but they were turning to false gods. The word of God was like a light saying, look at the path you're on. You're walking right off into the cliff and you can see it. It's clear. Then God says, Because I take delight in committed love and not sacrifice. And we finally get to the question, what does God mean? Didn't he create sacrifice? Recall, and as is also said, intimate knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Verse 6, burnt offerings were for sin. They were to point ahead to the coming Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who washes our sins away. So yes, they needed those sacrifices. 
But what those sacrifices were pointing to was God as their Savior. God being faithful. God loving them. But they were just coming and saying, All right, I've sinned. Here's here's the prescribed animal. And God's off my back and I'm out of here. We call that formalism. There was not the loving heart behind all of that. There was not the committed love to God. And it really changes because I remember as a child sometimes getting in trouble for things that I really wasn't sorry for, but I just didn't like the discipline that came with it, so I pretended to be sorry. That's what they were doing. However, when you recognize God has done everything to save you, God provides for you, God even placed you in your circumstances in life that he could pour his love upon you, then you suddenly have a committed love for God. And it's, man, my loving God who's already forgiven me is who I sinned against. And it changes everything. Then we're the spouse saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got frustrated with you. I, you know, I was in the wrong. That's what God is talking about. Let's apply that now to our modern time. The Pharisees got mad because Jesus called a tax collector a sinner to be saved. And Jesus said, the sick, it's the sick who need a doctor. Many people can get confused today like the Pharisees and think that they're saved by acting holy enough, by looking down their nose at other people who are sinners. God says, that's not mercy. That's not committed love. When you know how much I've forgiven you, you will not be that way with others. However, being careful that you don't fall into the sin, you'll happily roll up your sleeves and jump into the muck and mire to help pull them out and pour my son's blood upon them. Like that dead formalism that said, we'll get a blessing from God. You know, God's been disciplining us. We'll make some sacrifices. Boom, he'll restore us with grace. There are people today who teach a theology of glory. You hear it when you listen to the sermons. If you give enough offerings, if you give enough money, then God's going to bless you with more money kind of stuff that's designed to squeeze a blessing out. And the people fall for this thinking that same formalism. If I just go through the right motions and pretend like I love God, then God's going to give me extra blessings. God blesses us first by giving us salvation, and then we give out of a committed love to the Lord. In the medieval ages, one of the things Martin Luther would stand up against, but in the medieval ages, the idea crept into the Christian church that you were saved by the work worked. So, for example, you came to church and you didn't know a lick bit of Latin, and the priest preached in Latin, So you didn't know anything he said in the sermon. Well, the church at that time said, well, just because you were there, that was a good work for you and you got years out of purgatory for it. Just going through the motions. Martin Luther stood up to that. He said, no. That's why they started preaching in the way people could understand that it's actually God working through his word that gives you that grace. But we get into that idea of formalism as well today. Many running out against popular teaching of today would say, if we bow at the right times, if we cross ourselves at the right times, and that can be the right thing, but if we're just doing it because we think that that's going to please God, then we're just like the people bringing sacrifices. The opposite end in Christianity today People who want to sing songs and say, Lord, I love you so much. I'm so in love with you. Sometimes if you listen to some of the songs and the attitude behind it, they're not focusing on God at all. They're focusing on themselves. And there are lots of songs we sing where we do uh, rightfully sing, Lord, I love you because of your grace. So I don't want to confuse you. But there again, people can think that they're doing the right thing and they're actually just going through the motions. What a blessing it is for us to know that, yes, God will discipline us. 
But he does it because he doesn't want to lose us. And when we've received the lesson, when we repent, God comes pouring forth saying, I am your loving father. I am your loving savior. I am the loving Holy Spirit who has given you faith. You are washed clean. You remain my child. Amen. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, heaven and earth are full of your glory. All the stars, the sun and moon, all energies and forces, the sea and clouds are messengers of your wonder and might. For your creation, we praise you, O Father. We pray for your church and your people. Grant us ministers and teachers who are led by your spirit and earnestly hold forth your word of life. Save us from all false prophets and deceitful guides that we, being knit together in love, may with one mind strive for the truth of your word. Guard and defend our homes, that parents may be kept in the bonds of love and rule their children well, nourishing them in truth and righteousness. Bestow your favor on all useful labor in industry and agriculture, education and science, the professions and the arts, that in their advancement your people may prosper. We pray for all who may be ill in body, mind, or spirit, for all who may be in danger, for all who may be in anxiety or perplexity, for all who may be suffering disappointment or defeat. Be present with them in their afflictions. Show them the way out of all their troubles and save them for your mercy's sake. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for Christian fathers who have fulfilled their role faithfully in showing your love and providence for the family you've entrusted to their care. But our society sees abandoning uh, mothers as a good thing, as normal, and, and is tearing down the institution of fatherhood. And so we ask that you help your church to shine to those who do not have good Christian fathers, to be examples to them, that they may be pointed to you and your fatherly love and providence. As our state has seen a tremendous decline in natural resources, we pray for those who are losing their jobs, Lord, and we ask that you let them see your love and providing hand even in this, that you are just opening up other doors for them. And we pray, Lord, that you bless us, that that industry can come back or that something else comes back so that our, our own state doesn't go bankrupt. Hear us, Lord, as we bring you our private petitions. Heavenly Father, you did not spare your only Son, but freely gave him up for us all. And all other petitions that you read in our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, 
and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.